Get to Old Navy right now. Get up to 40% off jeans, outerwear, and tees. Plus, grab stylish new jeans from just 18 bucks for adults, 12 for kids at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Hurry, ends tonight. Valid 1020 to 1028. Select styles only. Please, can you remind me if you be so kind? Staring out into space, asking God to hear my case. Trying to think of all things past. How long will my memory last with purple angel? Purple angel. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, uh, the founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, and I'm also the daughter of a mother who had dementia for 30 years, and that's why I started this company. I really wanted to raise the voice of um, resources, products, and tools, and the voice of those living with dementia along with those caring for them. And just connect a community because I, I felt really lost and so did my whole family. And so this has really been a fun venture for me, um, getting to meet people all around the world and hearing all of the cool things that are happening. And so I want to I wanna thank you for um, being part of our community. Today, I think you will really enjoy the show. And, um, and I think you'll probably want to share this information with other people, too. Our, our guest is, is a phenomenal speaker and advocate, and I will introduce him shortly as he waits patiently in the wings there. Um, I always like to tell new people uh, to our show a little bit about Alzheimer's Speaks. And basically, we're an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort around the world. We also help companies expand their brand footprint by leveraging our content and our community uh, to help to help get the word out of, of what their work is and how they can help you. So don't worry, we're not going to share your emails or any of that kind of stuff, but it's just nice to be able to put a, a face with a voice and a product and a service or a tool out there. I know that I, I personally find that really helpful. I also want to thank all of our listeners because of your loyalty and your time commitment to us. You have elevated Alzheimer's Speaks way beyond what I ever thought we would be. Due to your likes, your clicks, and your shares, you've gotten us recognized by Oprah as a health hero this year, Maria Shriver as architect of change, and Dr. Oz as the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's. And I'm telling you, that wouldn't have happened without you. So all of those accolades, you know, get passed on to you because I truly believe we're a team. And I'd love to hear from you because I know each of you has a story to tell. That's why you're here. We're all connected. And um, so today we're going to have a, a really, I think, fun and interesting conversation about the morals and ethics of and the challenges of living with dementia from, you know, prior to diagnosis all the way to death, because there's so many things that spin around in our head. And so we are really lucky to have Dr. Stephen G. Post with us. And he is the author of a book called The Moral Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease, Ethical Issues from Diagnosis to Dying. And it's with uh, John Hopkins Press, and it's in its second edition. 
He has worked with individuals and families that have grappled with the challenges of what he calls deep forgetfulness since 1993. So the guy's not a newbie to this topic. <laughs> He's got a, he has a really good handle. He's spoken in more than um, 150 Alzheimer's Association chapters across the U.S. and Canada. He has addressed more than 100 venues across Europe and Asia as well with his message of love for the deeply forgot, uh, forgetful. And he talks about the problem of our need for hyper um, cognitive values that blind us and in our self-identity and our personhood. And so we'll, we'll get more into that conversation and how that can uh, really cause uh, com communication confusion between us. Dr. Post is also the president of the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. And you can just go to unlimitedloveinstitute.org for more information there. And he's also the founder of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University School of Medicine. And last I have to mention is he is also a best-selling author uh, for the book, Why Good Things Happen to Good People. So like I said, we're going to have a great conversation. And I'm just, I'm so thrilled that you're able to take the time to be with us today, Dr. Post. Thank you, Lori. It's an honor. Well, it's, I think it's, like I said, I, I always find these conversations enlightening and um they always stir my mind, and so I'm really, I, I'm really, really excited to talk. Now, you you talk about the term deeply forgetful people, and um, let's let's go down that one first because you you've got another word too that I want to um, kind of dissect. And um, why did you create um, and feel the need for that phrase, deeply forgetful people? Important to mention. Uh, is oftentimes uh, a term of disapproval or criticism. We say he's demented or she's demented, and it's not complimentary to be sure. Um, but also, uh, it suggests a real sharp division between them, the demented people, and us, the people who are not demented. And I don't like that kind of in-group, out-group dynamic. So I like deep forgetfulness because, honestly speaking, we are all forgetful to degrees. Now, many of your listeners forget where they park their car, like I do regularly. And I push that key over, and suddenly it starts blaring, and I know where it is. It's okay to forget where you parked your car, supposedly. It's not okay to forget that you have a car that's parked. Um, but... Uh, you know, we all, at various points in our life, um, struggle with uh, forgetfulness. And so uh, people with dementia are simply more deeply forgetful, although they will have moments of luminosity. They will have uh, moments when they will be surprising to us, and hope is really being open to those surprises and being sensitive to them. So they're not really different. It's not them versus us. It's just a shared humanity. It's a common humanity grappling with um, degrees of forgetfulness. And, uh, and we shouldn't categorize some people in, in a way that doesn't protect them just because they are 
um, a little more forgetful at the moment than we are. I really like that definition uh, because we do all forget. And I know when I address uh, crowds, you know, I'll say, how many people have forgotten, ever forgotten something? And they go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. How many for people have forgotten something today, you know, in the last hour, you know? And then they just kind of all laugh because it is, it is something normal that we do, but it's to the degree um, that differentiates it. And, and so I think it's important to, to acknowledge that. So thank you for um, defining that. How about hypercognitive? Where did that come from and why? Well, I, I wrote The Moral Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease in 1995, having traveled around the country to really at least 100 different Alzheimer's chapters with Steve McConnell and some of the old timers and um, it just occurred to me that the reason why we don't make room for people who are deeply forgetful in our lives and in our communities uh, is because we have hypercognitive values. What we value in a human being is their ability to uh, make plans and carry them out rationally. Uh, we want them to be economically productive. We want them to be cognitively intact. Uh, and of course, um, when that's your value system, you miss a lot because what's really much more important than what I call hypercognitive values is love, just the connection, the way in which we interact with one another in ways that, that are meaningful and create bonds and are flourishing. So uh, uh, ultimately, uh, hypercognitive values are exclusionary, and they were so dominant, actually, in Nazi Germany that uh, people with dementia were referred to as useless eaters or life unworthy of life. I spent a lot of time with people with uh, deep forgetfulness over the last, well, believe it or not, 30 years uh, professionally. And a lot of people with autism and a lot of people with uh, schizophrenia and many different conditions. And if I held to hypercognitive values, you know, I would never have discovered the joy of interacting because I believe every, everybody with forgetfulness is a teacher. They teach us to open our minds, to be inclusive, to realize the, the creativity that they have, the moments of uh, clear continuity and self-identity, uh, of, of mirth, uh, of musicality, uh, and so forth. And so uh, they're there in a, in a thousand glorious ways. And if we just think about them in terms of, well, do they measure up to our normal cognitive paradigm, then we miss all of that, and it's no good. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think they are massive teachers. And, um, you know, with my journey with my mom, I, I always thought I had an understanding of unconditional love, but I didn't realize the levels of unconditional love that as she declined more, it was, it, it, it was spiritual. I mean, it just became, it, it, that's the only way I can describe it because you can't even put it into words because there was such a connectiveness that would have been and could have been totally overlooked and just, you know, shunned as, oh, she's just that shell of a body. But, um, you know, they open us up to, I think, the rich, richness of 
all the ways that we communicate instead of just forcing these words and these phrases out of somebody. Um, it, it's, it saddens me when I, when I see that. I understand it because I was there. And it's an adjustment um, to learn to, to communicate in a different fashion, even though we all pretty much know the, um, the value and the importance of nonverbals. We all have felt it when somebody's walked into the room and it's changed everything and not a word has been spoken. And yet when we're dealing with somebody with dementia, that seems to go out the window. And you're right, it's, it's remembering and it's being precise and it's remembering the story the exact same way that I remembered it. Yet any policeman will tell you everyone's story is different. <laughs> so I, I love that um, that you've coined that phrase and are really pointing to to other values and, and riches. Right. And there are whole cultures where hypercognitive values don't dominate. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, in uh, in Asian cultures, typically in China, people who have quote unquote dementia. Uh, they actually don't use the word there. Uh, grandma or grandpa are still there. They're still a part of the family. You still want to just be open-minded about these uh, wonderful moments when their presence will be felt uh, and expressed in all kinds of different ways. And so uh, we need to just think very broadly. I'm, I'm very fond of uh, pioneers like Jean Vanier, who founded L'Arche, for example, uh, where people really emphasize love uh, as the core human value and the core connective tissue. And we're not simply uh, evaluating one another in terms of how sharp we are intellectually. Mm -hmm. Philosophers bother me because they say that if you don't have uh, procedural rationality and if you don't lay out plans into the future, and operationalize them, somehow you're not a person in the full sense. You're a non-person. And as soon as you're a non-person, somehow you become vulnerable, uh, and, and that's a real problem. Yeah. Well, I, I know for myself, I, I, I have a conflict a lot of times just with medical models or academia models because it's from A to B to C to D, and I've just found that you have to be fluid. You know, in, in life and with people with dementia, it, it reduces stress on everybody's part. It opens your mind to learning different ways and looking for different things and really having the goal at hand versus the process to the goal. Yeah, so I'm not a big fan of stage theories. Because <laughs> uh, the bottom line is if you've seen one case of... Uh, deep forgetfulness, you've seen one case. Mm -hmm. Actually, you know, now more and more uh, professionals are speaking about the so-called Alzheimer's spectrum, a little bit more mm -hmm. like autism, which is to say that um, there's no great generalization that you can make. I've known many cases where people who you might have thought were long since, quote-unquote, gone, uh, came back. That's why music and memory is so inspiring around the country. You know, you may see uh, uh, several minutes when someone is more aware of who they are, and then they'll fade. But to the caregivers, it's a eureka moment because yeah. they realize, no, I'm not caring for a shell, a husk, etc. But, uh, you know, grandma is 
is still there underneath it all. And so I'm always uh, uh, wanting to communicate with people and look for little signs um, that they're trying to convey to me. And if I just think, well, this is a intractable progression from point A to point B to point C, I miss all of the richness of the individual experience. Yeah. What do you think about the, the word um, behavior? Because that, that's one I want to toss out the door. And, you know, I, I personally think that we need to look at them like signals and um, clues as to why they're reacting the way they are. But that, that seems to be an issue. You know, it doesn't fit in this mold. So we're going to call it a behavior. And that's used a lot in the world of dementia. Oh, I think that you're quite right, that so often um, uh, agitation and uh, a whole variety of quote-unquote behaviors are really ways of uh, communicating uh, various things that we are simply not quite aware of. Uh, There's a wonderful psychologist at Georgetown named Stephen Sabat who's written a lot about this. Uh, So the, 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 the challenge is to really learn the art of communication with these individuals and to see everything they're, they're uh, engaging in as a part of a, of a larger communicative effort. I remember once I was out in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, uh, at an art program for people who were deeply forgetful, and there was an old gentleman who kept drawing uh, the same line in the middle of a... Uh, of a picture, uh, we would ask him, Jim, uh, what does that mean? Uh, how are you? Uh, how are your kids? He couldn't respond much. But then one day, surprisingly, he said, this is a map so my daughter can get to my house. Hmm. And, 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 you know, in people with dementia, and the psychiatric literature is very clear about this, there's all kinds of examples of so-called terminal lucidity, people who somehow, you know, uh, uh, say thoughtful things uh, in their last hours. Uh, there are many ways in which we need to be open to surprises. And that's what I like to think of in terms of hope. What is hope among the deeply forgetful? Well, it's being open to surprises and never, never being closed-minded about what might actually happen. Yeah. Those are such big gifts when they happen, too. I mean, just so touching and so um, so ingrained in you in, in your humanity I mean that you'll never ever forget those moments I mean you just they're and they're they can be really small they can be really funny they can be really short um, but they're always profound always profound and and they bring us back into the reality that you don't really know what's going on with me in here <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, over the years, uh, I have a little bit of a background. I'm a, I'm a psychologist and a philosopher, but I have a little background in pastoral care. And, you know, grandkids have always been asking me, is grandma still there? Is grandma still there? And I've never had the audacity to say, no, I've, I've always said, of course, she's still there. Mm-hmm. The communication process isn't so good right now, but underneath it all, She's there, and you can connect with her with a smile. You can sit and look at her and call her by name and and hold her hand, and she's there. And don't be surprised when uh, on a good morning she responds to you. You can 
see it in, in Alzheimer's poetry programs. In Brooklyn Heights, there's an Alzheimer's, well, it's actually a, a remembering center. And you have these uh, Alzheimer's poets who can sit there with a group of 30 or 40 individuals who are really not communicative, but simply by engaging them in an animated way with, say, a well-known poem like Robert Frost's The Road Less Traveled, most of them will chime in and they'll even get up and they'll be dancing. And you see them, by the way, dancing and music and the, the Alzheimer's choirs and all these things. Um, the symbolic uh, presence, you know, neurology says that the symbolic part of reason really is there until the very end. And so that's why people can still hold a rosary bead in their hands and find it meaningful. There are just so many ways in which uh, individuals and their core I-ness, their core self-identity are, are there. And we just need to be a little more creative and a little more open-minded and, and, and we need to invite ourselves into their worlds. And, and don't you think we have to get comfortable with silence? I, I, you know, to me, it's always this, you know, you got to have a response and we, we don't give anybody even time to respond, you know, and we're so uncomfortable with quiet. And there's, and yet I always tell people, how often do you just like to sit next to a loved one, hold a hand or touch shoulders or just be in their presence, you know, just, and, and nothing. And it brings you comfort. Why, why can't you go there? Why can't you remember the grace of that? Yeah. I really love presence and silence. You know, most of us were so caught up in time. Uh, I'm, I'm a Clevelander, but I've been in New York on loan for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> and I've discovered the New York strut, which is racing from point A to point B and stepping over people on the streets, to be frank. Um, so there's a callousness to it, and we're really caught up in, in, in that linkage between past and present and anxiety about the future. People call this the age of anxiety. You know, they've been calling it the age of anxiety for about 60 years, and, and it is that. Anxiety levels are through the ceiling. And people write best-selling books about living in the now, right? And all, yeah. All the spiritual folks buy these books. Well, actually, if you want to live in the now, if you want to get free of temporal stress and just live in the now, one of the best things you can do is hang out with somebody who's deeply forgetful because you really don't have a choice. <laughs> and I'm all for that. So there is something um, very peaceful and, and almost meditational, but it's, it's difficult for people to, to recognize that that they don't have to be caught up in doing, doing, doing. They can also just be. Yeah. Well, I always said with my mom, she was like the safest place for me to go because she didn't judge. You know, she didn't have that need to judge. She just was accepting of, of whoever. And when you were talking about um, the grandkids and, you know, is, is grandma still there? I, I'll remember more than, more than once where we would have a big get-together and the little kids were playing under the table like they do. And my mom would be napping. You know, she's just too tired. And then you would hear her giggle. And right after she giggled, they popped out under the table. It's like her energy knew that they were coming. And she was so connected to that. And it happened repeatedly. And we were, we were, we were just watching amazement how she was so connected to them. I love the intergenerational schools on, on this note, you know, uh, 
there's one in Cleveland that Kathy and Peter Whitehouse started some years ago, and now there's one up in Westchester County. There are actually quite a few around. So you've got first graders and the second graders, and, and then in comes, uh, you know, a dozen or so people or more uh, who are deeply forgetful, and they can spend two or three hours together very successfully. The deeply forgetful people love interacting with the kids, and it oftentimes brings out a lot of their abilities that you were surprised to see. And, of course, the, 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 the kids, they don't really have much insight into whether an elderly individual is forgetful or not. It really doesn't matter to them in the least. So there's a natural kind of conversation and presence that goes on. And the same thing with the dogs. You know, I, I was really impressed about two years ago. I was giving a talk in, at an Alzheimer's conference in Sydney, Australia. They have a big Alzheimer's dog program. They're very trained uh, uh, helper dogs over there. And they do that, that in Scotland, too. Everybody with Alzheimer's disease in Scotland gets an Alzheimer's dog. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful thing. So. Uh, one afternoon, uh, about 250 individuals with dementia in uh, Sydney, with their dogs on their leashes, and these, again, are well-trained dogs, so that everything works out, They're very comforting and very present. Uh, uh, they walk down the main drag in Sydney, uh, past the cathedral and past the hospital, and uh, people were kind of Google-eyed because they couldn't figured out and a guy got out of his taxi pulled up his taxi next to me and he said hey what's this man these dogs they're for blind people (laughs) and i think actually everybody everybody in america uh who has dementia uh could probably benefit from having a, a a dog it's a wonderful wonderful thing to have a dementia dog and i'm all for it so we need to move ahead on that. Yeah, it's it's amazing um, what they can do. And I mean, so a lot of people have dogs that aren't trained, and just the companionship alone is is powerful. But you know, when they can come up and tell you to you know bop you on your on your shoulder and tell you to take your meds or you know if something okay. is wrong and be there, uh, it's 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 wonderful. And it's, it's enabling, you know, for people and it gives them comfort and reduces stress and, and all of those things. And we know stress doesn't help, you know, those that are struggling with this. Well, let me comment on that stress for a minute, Lori. So if you go back 10 years ago, uh, if you went to a big scientific conference and somebody said, well, stress contributes to Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. By the way, when I say Alzheimer's disease, that's a specific cause of dementia. Mm-hmm. 60% of dementia is caused by Alzheimer's, but it's also caused by, as those of you know who have seen the movie Concussion, chronic encephalitis mm-hmm. by multi-infarct or vascular dementia. There are many, many causes. And that's why any progression of Alzheimer's is so complicated because oftentimes it's a mixed diagnosis. It's some of the vascular stuff, which doesn't go through stages, it's pretty flat and pretty even, and then it's mixed with Alzheimer's. So there's a lot of stuff going on, and it's very difficult to make meaningful generalizations. That's why you just, like I say, you've seen one case, you've seen, you've seen one kid. Right. Yeah. But, um, you know, as far as um, the uh, uh, 
Uh, what, was we, what were we talking about? Remind me. Well, now I forgot because I. <laughs> <laughs> we're all a little deeply forgetting. Yep, yep, yep. That's why I like the term because it reminds me that sometimes I'll. But um, anyway, so go ahead. <laughs> okay. Well, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was when you use the term deeply forgetful, do you, do you use that as a general term or do you have stages of that? Because everybody likes those stages and, and I'm with you. Who cares? I don't like stages. I don't use it for stages. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I never like stage series generally. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I recognize that very, very broadly um, there's probably a preclinical phase uh, where people have some neurological issues going on, but um, they're not uh, symptomatic. Mm -hmm. And then there is a kind of an early stage where people are having certain kinds of, of issues. Um, then they get to a point where they forget that they forget. They're no longer anxious and insightful about their forgetfulness and oftentimes they'll have a relatively or can have a relatively benign emotional adjustment although there may be exceptions to that and there are uh, and there's probably can be said a kind of terminal stage as well uh, but uh, it's a long uh, varied journey and uh, it all has to do with lots of different things oh yeah stress that's what I wanted to talk about so nowadays Nobody I know in neurology would take the position that stress doesn't contribute to Alzheimer's disease. You know, there are family history factors that make people sometimes a little more susceptible than others. There's the early onset stuff. Only about 2% of the uh, people with dementia have uh, so-called presenilin disease, which hit about age 38 or 39 and is pretty quick in its progression. Um, um, uh, there are genetic factors. Age itself is a susceptibility factor. Um, certainly, uh, gender can be a, a susceptibility factor. There are more women with dementia than men. Uh, there are a lot of different things going on. Even, even uh, diet and physical health can be important because that affects your vasculature. Uh, but uh, certainly... Uh, stress is a factor because when you have extended stress over a long period of time, and an awful lot of people in today's world, you know, Lori, they're very stressed out. You ever looked out, you know, when you're driving on the highway, I mean, people fall full chested on the horn and yell out an expletive before you can blink an eye. I mean, they're living in this kind of world of stress and um, they don't know how to get past it. They don't do the the deep breathing and the kind of spiritual techniques that give them a break on that stress. So for people who are chronically stressed out, there are three things that happen. You get slower wound, you get vascular issues because metabolites fill, uh, become fatty acids and fill up the veins. And then you also have hippocampal atrophy. So the hippocampus, which is a part of the brain that diminishes, and that's a big uh, CAT scan indicator of probable Alzheimer's, um, that gets smaller under conditions of stress. And so there's no question in most people's mind now that to some degree, um, Alzheimer's is stress-related. I don't want to overstate it, but the other studies that are exciting is that the strongest protective factor 
for older adults with regard to retaining their memory is a sense of purpose. You've probably heard that. All the purpose studies up at Rush in Chicago and so forth. Uh, very clear, you know. Uh, so, so these kinds of uh, positive psychological states like purpose, uh, forgiveness, and not going through life in a rage, uh, you know, hostile, bitter, ruminating, just kind of learning how to let that go and, and, and be free of those sorts of stresses, including chronological stresses, that's all beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I remember going through, when I went through a divorce like 10 years ago, and I was just in that overwhelmed state. Even though I wanted the divorce, there was just a lot of stuff piling on. And I'll, I'll never forget the day my water heater went out. My brother came over, and he was fixing it. And he said, go get me a wrench. And I'm a girl who has my own tools, you know, always have. I didn't know what a wrench looked like. I just... I went upstairs and I went to look and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what a wrench is. And I had to go down and I brought him a piece of paper and I said, can you draw me a wrench? And he looked at me like, are you nuts? You you have your own power tools. You, you know, you're, you always fix stuff. And I, and, and it made me really realize what, what someone with dementia or who is deeply uh, forgetful, what that must feel like on a daily basis. And it's only, it only happened that one time to me. But it was, I'll never, ever forget it because I, I couldn't, I couldn't visualize. I couldn't, I mean, I, what they talk about is someone telling them to take their pills and looking right at them and not knowing them that, that yeah. that's that. It's like, I, I get that. And it's yes, this, sir. this emptiness and this overwhelmingness of letting somebody else down because you don't know. It was just a, an unbelievable moment. Yeah, well, stress and also, also uh, you know, depression and so forth mm-hmm. was, was called pseudo-dementia because you'll get these moments in, in stress and you really do uh, lose normal uh, memory uh, and then it comes back. So it's not really, technically, dementia is, uh, is irreversible. Although I must say that people now talk about rementia and music and memory and different kinds of activities. Um, but, uh, but for sure, when you have an experience like that, like you had, you know, that's why I like to say again, deeply forgetful. I realize that there are probably hundreds of times in my life when I've had a moment or two and it's, it kind of is spooky in a way. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if, if that was what you were experiencing a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time, because again, you know, the continuities are there. People who are deeply forgetful will still have moments of luminosity. The thing I wanted to say for all the caregivers out there, and this is maybe the message that is most meaningful uh, to me, Alzheimer's disease is not a biological disease. It's partly a biological disease, but it is a biopsychosocial condition, as they say. And that means... Now that we understand neuroplasticity, we understand how our relational situation, our environmental situation, our psychological situation can actually feed back and shape brain cells, reshape brain cells, and indeed form new synaptic connections between them. Uh, That means that that, um, however many times people show these brain scans and the glossy glowy pictures 
The bottom line is that it's not just biologically determined. It's also determined in part by the kind of world that we create for these deeply forgetful individuals because that emotion, that feeling they'll have, the diminution of stress, the acceptance they'll feel, uh, the invitation to be who they are, that will actually feed back directly into their brain and affect the way uh, the brain acts under these conditions. So, so it is a, we don't take the word biopsychosocial seriously enough. You know, the medical model, of course, is all bio. So we want to throw a cholinesterase inhibitor at these folks and do these kinds of things. I'm not going to get into that. But uh, I'll tell you one thing. I knew one of the greatest neurologists in American history, uh, Joseph Michael Foley, who was a co-founder of the National Alzheimer's Association and who hired me in 1988 at Case Western as the young assistant professor to work with the deeply forgetful. And, uh, you know, Joe once, when they were doing some of the early research on these uh, uh, so-called cholinesterase inhibitors, um, he, he said in, in a panel that on a scale of 1 to 10, if um, a good drug is 10, let's say insulin for the treatment of diabetes, um, you know, what we have for Alzheimer's is probably a 1, if that. You know, it's just not overwhelming. It's not doing a lot of a lot of good. And you're still, you know, Peter Whitehouse, who actually has credit for discovering the whole biological basis of these medications, he says it's like treating um, a brain tumor with aspirin. Aspirin can help in a few symptoms, but it doesn't have an effect overall. Mm-hmm. You don't have anything that has an overall effect yet. And if you take something like music and memory, where people actually sort of come back temporarily into who they are and they get rhythmic and, and they can converse a little bit and, and salute the flag and whatever it is, you know, that's probably a seven on a scale of one to 10. That's probably a seven. And, and so what we've done is we've, we've, we've forgotten just how much our interactions, the, the, the ways in which we support the deeply forgetful actually is part of the process and will affect progression to some degree. Well, I, I, I could talk with you all day because I'm so in sync with, with what you're saying. And it's nice to see that there are more social programs coming into play and the creativity because I think that's one of the things sometimes when we, when we get sucked into a box of this is the way it must be, we lose our creativity and you see, you know, like you talked about, you know, the singing voice choirs and, the music and the arts and the poetry and the uh, if it's knitting or painting or whatever we're we're losing that creativeness and people i think so so often say well you know they can't do that they can't do that well we're not allowing them to do that have you ever heard of humanitides yeah um, cuz they do some cool stuff in terms of getting people you know back into thinking and believing that they can do um, that they can do some things that others have told them for years they can't. I think of dementia along the lines of a disability model, right? Mm-hmm. These are people who are differently able. That's all it is. They are differently able. And uh, if you get really good with them and if you can connect with them, uh, you can do reasonably well. Of course, there are always going to be challenges, and I don't want to under state 
those challenges. They can be very logistically precarious, you know, and you, you know, you, you can run into all kinds of difficulties, but in general, um, deeply forgetful people have a kind of presence about them that I find to be almost beautiful and luminous. So my wife, Mitsuko, is from Kyoto, Japan, which is the center of Zen Buddhism in Japan. You know, they have all these big Buddhist temples. And um, in, in, in Japan, they think of dementia differently. So there's this wonderful book that a, a caregiver wrote, a woman who was the daughter-in-law, and she was writing it about her father-in-law, because it's a patriarchal system, so she's going to be the one taking care of her husband's dad. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's got uh, pretty severe dementia, and he defecates on the tatami mat, the straw mats. Now, you know, if I even set the corner of my shoe on the tatami mat, I'm in trouble for a week, right? Because <laughs> that's got to be clean all the time. So the caregiver is on her knees, and she's she's scrubbing this tatami mat and she's really frustrated she's in tears she's cursing then she looks up and she sees her father-in-law and there he is the sun is shining uh through the open window and he's just in the pure present he's he's not stressed at all he's just there in the moment and the image is meant to kind of evoke this sense that somehow because he's free of chronology free of time that he's found a place, a space in the universe that's kind of special. And, 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 and you know, two, uh, three years ago, I was invited to Bangalore in India, which is a wonderful place if you've been there, uh, anyone to India, it's great, mm-hmm. airport. And I was invited to run a conference at the Indian Institute for Advanced Studies. So all these incredible neurologists and Alzheimer's folks from that part of the world were there. Uh, and I gave a talk about uh, the value of deeply forgetful people and what we learn from them. And that there's a different kind of rationality than just being able to think in a forward way. There's the symbolic rationality where we can connect with certain symbols and voices and things in our environment that are sort of part of who we are. And we need to emphasize that. And I said that what's really important isn't so much reason that's a western thing but what's really important is just consciousness being mm-hmm. and so at that point his holiness the dalai lama and richard Gere walked in because they hang out there occasionally it was un- completely unexpected and i was giving this talk and his holiness quietly sat down and he listened and then he, he stood up and he put his hand down on the table and he said yes there is no reason to think that your consciousness, because you are not forgetful, is of any greater value than the consciousness of those who are more forgetful than you are. End of story. Wow. Wow. What a, that's, that is neat. Um, I also like the word that you used, um, or the phrase, differently abled instead of disabled. That's just so powerful, too. Do you know that there are people with, diagnoses of Alzheimer's disease who are dis the psychiatrists use the term disinhibited. So I've known people with Alzheimer's disease who had no artistic gifts that anybody was aware of. Uh They get demented and suddenly they turn out to be pretty decent artists. 
I mean, there are actual case histories of this that have been yeah. written. And, um, and I knew a fellow in Cleveland, because I spent many years in Cleveland uh, working with this population. There was a fellow who'd been known around Shaker Heights as a pretty nasty guy. <laughs> I mean, he was really rough on the edges. Uh, he becomes demented, and suddenly he's altruistic. Mm-hmm. And he, every morning he's, he's riding shotgun in the van, and he's going knocking on doors, and he's cordially and gently helping people with dementia into the van and bringing them to that Foley Elder Healthcare Center for their art programs. Um, it's really quite interesting. The great artist, Willem de Kooning, was a very anxious guy. He had a lot of fist fights in front of bars in Greenwich Village. He was diagnosed with dementia. His, his work is so intense and so anxious and so difficult to even look at. And suddenly he's painting peacefully. He painted for 13 and a half years uh, with, with, with a progressive dementia. And his work was like Georgia O'Keeffe. It was beautiful. It was light. It was free of anxiety. He was in a completely different spiritual space. And he painted for 13 and a half years. He had a home helper with him, you know. Mm-hmm. He was a quote-unquote live alone, I guess you'd say. And, and, um, um, and then he passed away. And some of the, there was a, a big posthumous exhibit of his work at the Museum of Modern Art. And some of the critics, they said, oh, he was a shell, he was a husk. He was an embarrassment to, compared to what he was. And there was one reviewer I really liked. And she said, wait a minute, this is a guy who had Alzheimer's disease for 14 years. And for 13 and a half of those years, he knew full well who he was. He, he would just rise up sporadically, he'd dip a, a brush in paint, go up to the easel, and he would paint these incredible things. And of course, he loved his dungarees because he still identified symbolically. So that's what I mean when I say rationality isn't just procedural, it's about the symbols of who we are, the paintbrush in his hand, that pair of dungarees. And so, you know, what do you do when you're going to get in a shower? Well, that's a challenge, but actually, you know, it can be managed, like if, you know, when he takes off his dungarees, well, then you have another pair just like them with the same paint stains, and you give him those, and then you put the other one in the wash. I mean, they manage pretty well. But the point is that this, 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 this creative coolness is still there, even if we can't operationalize plans in a kind of normal, temporal, future-oriented way. Mm-hmm. Well, what a beautiful story that is, too. I, I think... You know, to me, part of it is is that they, you know, they've lost their filters and they don't really care what anyone else thinks anymore. You know, so they're not trying to be pigeonholed. They're just very authentic. Um, and and that is beautiful. And it's it's too rare. You know, we need more people to be truly who they are. Yeah. Um, and I think the world would be a lot, a lot better off. Um, I do have to to ask you, because we really haven't um, gotten even into ethical issues per se. We've used a lot of the vocabulary, and I think it's there. Um, And I want to be appreciative of your time. Um, But can you tell us maybe a couple of the biggest ethical issues that you see as the progression of of dementia occurs and and what people struggle with? Well, you know, um, the biggest issue is there are many, many issues, but the biggest issue to me remains exactly what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. How do we include the deeply forgetful in our vision of a shared humanity? 
Think about Norman Rockwell's The Golden Rule with all these people from every age and background and color and religion. And there they are. Love thy neighbor as thyself. How can we really be inclusive? And that means we need to get rid of hypercognitive values and all these kinds of exclusionary assumptions. And we need to really be radical in our affirmation of a shared humanity. Because here's what happened in Nazi Germany. Um, in 1939, talk about ethical issues, <clears throat> they had a program called T4, which mm -hmm. Tiergestrasse 4, 4th Street in Munich. They took about 35,000 people out of institutions who were uh, diagnosed with dementia. And uh, over the year and a half, they let them freeze uh, group by group in the snow, in the ice, in the cold water at night. This was the beginning of the hypothermia experiments, which, by the way, uh, this, the Center for Hypothermia Research is in Duluth. <laughs> in Minnesota. <you're> right. <laughs> because people show up in the winter frozen to death. So anyway, but, but it was a terrible, terrible thing. And the interesting point is that these folks were not discriminated against groups. They were not uh, people of color. They were not gypsies. They were not Jews. They were not gays, all the ones that were discriminated against for these horrible reasons. But these were just people who were Aryans, but they were deeply forgetful. So they were left to freeze, and they were frozen to death, and they would be brought back into the asylums and thawed out at different temperatures in different uh, mediums, hot air, uh, hot water, and so forth. And the Nazis said, well, we need to know at what point it becomes futile send rescuers out into the waves of the North Atlantic to save down pilots. Well, the Nazi, the German people reacted against this, and, and, and T4 was stopped after a year and a half. But the same investigators who were in charge of it went right to the death camps of Dachau and Auschwitz and perpetrated the hypothermia research on uh, these discriminated group against groups that I mentioned. And so it's really interesting to remember that the lowest point in medical ethics historically ever, the Nazi doctors, it got its start among the deeply forgetful. Why? Because somehow they were deemed to be more forgetful than others to the extent that they no longer counted under the protective umbrella of do no harm. And so that's always a big issue for me. And um, that's why uh, you have the Alzheimer's Association, because the, the great writer of that time, Leo Alexander, who wrote the Nuremberg Code, he was, a, he was an army physician, um, he said, you know, you need to have voluntary associations forming up around these populations, like people with dementia, or people with whatever it might be, mental illness, ALS, so forth. You need to have voluntary associations to speak on their behalf, to advocate for them, to defend them, because otherwise they are so incredibly vulnerable. And that's why I have devoted pretty much 30 years of my life to this population and oftentimes to Alzheimer's chapters, because I really think that's, that's correct. I mean, this world is not a pretty place. The world's been burning since the world's been turning, Billy Jones. But the other things are, you know, I mean, in Canada right now, in, in Quebec, there's a big movement uh, toward... Uh, preemptive assisted suicide. Uh, and that happens in the Netherlands, by the way, with about 5% of people who are diagnosed while they're still capable. Uh, they sit down Oregon style. I'm a Reed College guy, so I know a little bit about Oregon, you know, with their 
milkshake full of 40 secanols and, and by the fireplace and everybody's gathered around and they call it quits. Um, I don't espouse that kind of thing, but don't get me wrong. But I will say that um, even as early as 1999, Steve McConnell and I did a survey of the Alzheimer's Association family caregivers nationally. And it was about one third who were kind of okay with this and one third who were dead set against it and one third who was kind of on the fence. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a big issue. Uh, I don't espouse it, uh, but I have to say, because I've been around medical centers for 35 years, Chicago, Michigan, Case Western, 20 years. I have known a few physicians who have taken that final exit. And uh, I, uh, so I don't advocate it, but, but it's, I have to say it's, it's a big issue. I think I think if you have if you have a nice support system, and if you trust the world around you, um, that option is not as attractive or meaningful to you. But if you're a live alone, if there's nobody you can trust, if there's nobody who you think can really be your advocate going forward, and about one out of every five people with Alzheimer's disease has no significant family relationship. Um, you know, it's a little more complicated. I think that the, um, there's just so many, so many, so many important issues. Um, um, how do you, um, how do you respect freedom and yet safety? Because you've got to respect both, you know, and, and that comes up constantly. I knew a guy in, in Cleveland Heights named Leo. And he happened to be originally from Brooklyn. It, and he said, you know, he, and he had, he, had, he had dementia, but he was agnostic about it, or he had what they call agnosia. Mm-hmm. But he was fine. He thought, I'm fine. I'm fine. He wasn't fine because if you asked him the same question 30 seconds later, you got a complete reverse answer. But um, he said, you know, I've been driving since I was five years old. In Brooklyn, my dad used to put me on his knee and we'd drive the Cadillac, and I've been driving all my life. And um, so his wife, who would take the train into into Cleveland and leave Leo at home on his own, uh, well, he was going driving and getting lost and getting in trouble. So she finally had to hide the keys. And uh, uh, he knew how to hotwire a car because he was from Brooklyn. <laughs> and eventually she had to undo the carburetor because at that time cars actually had carburetors. And so she came home one afternoon. And there was Leo in the parking lot of the house and the drive in the driveway of the house. And he had a big brand new shining Toyota red Camry, <laughs> which he had gone down to the, the Toyota place and bought on his own. I give him credit. He really fooled him. You know, <laughs> Through all the paperwork, did it all, got it done. And there he was dangling these keys in the sunlight. And, and, and so all these questions of, of freedom and safety uh, just go on and on and on. And, you want to you want to try to create a world of of safety, um, uh, but on the other hand, whenever it's at all possible, even in very little things, because small things go a long way, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the extent that you can give people small choices, it's very valuable. Even even when you speak with them, don't don't ask, well, what would you like for breakfast? Because that's that just creates anxiety. But if you ask them, would you like post toasties or ham and eggs? That cues them, you know, and they'll say, oh, 
post toasties you know so so you have to you have to give them opportunities when you can to make small choices within a within a um, a template of relative safety yeah well, and that makes so much sense. I mean, even just when we go out to eat the 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 menus are so expansive now i mean i i get I get overwhelmed when they tell me the soups and the salad dressings. I, I can't remember them all. And I look at my friends and they can't either, you know? And so it's like, just, you know, give us a couple. My daughter always gets <laughs> tempered with me about it because she's embarrassed. <laughs> you know, I think, I think that, that, that um, artificial nutrition and hydration uh, feeding pegs remain a big issue. It's, it's actually the case that now, they are used less and less and less, and, and people utilize assisted oral feeding much more. But um, um, the feeding peg is um, it is still an area of controversy. Uh, you know, the one reason why people who are deeply forgetful are still tied up to chairs in nursing homes is because they have no insight into what that little two inches of tube is that's sticking out their belly, usually tape. So they pull on and pull on and they pull it out and then they have to be restrained because it has to be replaced. And then they're sitting in their urine, they're getting skin ulcers and decubiti and infections and all those kinds of things. Plus they also have a significantly higher rate of aspiration pneumonia. Mm -hmm. So you're better off to do what I did with my grandmother, which was assisted oral feeding. By the way, just for everybody's information, a feeding pig, percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy tube, okay, <laughs> was never used in a deeply forgetful person until 1985. It was only invented in 1979 by Dr. Michael Gatterer at Rainbow Women's and Children's Hospital at Case Western University Hospitals in Cleveland. For what? For young kids who had eating issues and needed to be sustained for periods of time. Gatterer never wanted this to be used in people who were in the end stages of Alzheimer's, where the basic shutting down of the swallowing process and the GI system is just a natural part of a natural dying and always has been. I mean, Cicely Saunders and the hospice movement figured that out decades ago. So um, that's the, but of course, you know, um, sometimes we attach a lot of symbolic value, and I understand it. Uh, to providing water and food and so forth. That's part of our being a common humanity. So I acknowledge the nuances and the complexity of it. But on the other hand, I think that in general, uh, you don't want to impose that sort of technology on people with uh, Alzheimer's. Another big question, too, is what do you do about comorbid conditions? What about somebody who has a really fancy pacemaker? You have to, you have to, Study cardiology now to realize how complicated treatment for heart failure can be. I mean, people have every kind of contraption and wire and tube going around their backs and every place under the sun. And it's very high maintenance. It's very discomforting at times. Um, and the question is, well, okay, so someone's gotten to a point of very severe dementia. Um, do you really want to continue that? Because a lot of the things that you're doing to sustain them are not perceived subjectively as beneficial or kind. You know they are because that's helping them to live. 
Now, for them, as I've seen it, sometimes it's on a range between assault and torture. I say the same thing about some research. You know, I, I was involved in 1990 in the Takrin research at Case Western, and that was a drug that had a lot of liver toxicity. So people who were deeply forgetful had to come into the research center every two weeks, and they had to get a big blood draw to figure out what their liver toxicity levels were, and if they had high toxicity, they had to go off the study. Well, you know, the National Institute of Health defines minimal risk as, okay, a needle in the arm is just sort of ordinary risk. It's not high risk. It's okay. Mm-hmm. Objectively, but subjectively, if you've got dementia and you see that butterfly needle coming to your arm, you don't know what's going on. And I've seen people flail and scream and yell and dissent. And even still, you know, uh, honestly speaking, and I'm not being happy about this. You know, you'd say, well, let's give them a rest, give them a few minutes, and then we'll kind of bear down and do it anyway. And, and that's what happened. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the, you have to realize that some of these technologies, now, you know, treating diabetes, um, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not overly complicated in the sense of being uh, uh, extremely interventionist. But even something like that can be surprisingly burdensome for someone who's deeply forgetful. So we have to kind of think a lot about how our attitudes towards these underlying conditions, that may have been around for years before, you know, the actual onset of dementia, how we want to think about them. Yeah, it's so important for people to have these discussions and talk about healthcare directives and understand the difference, um, you know, what hospice is and isn't, and um, in palliative care, and uh, it, it, I remember. Another big, huge issue, Lori, just you mentioned it, palliative care. So up until 1999, as you know, nobody thought that people with dementia were experiencing underlying pain, for example, from arthritis or whatever. So if someone was in a nursing home or in a hospital screaming out loud and everybody could hear it and were alarmed by it, we would say, well, it's just the dementia. They've got Alzheimer's disease. But then in 1999, thanks to Greg Sachs and his work at the University of Chicago, we decided that, yeah, you know, they actually have lots of pain, just like most older adults have chronic pain. And suddenly, you know, we started treating it effectively and people developed the pain AD scale, a pain scale which you can use very easily in just a couple of minutes by observation for people with Alzheimer's disease. So now we use palliative care for them. But it wasn't until, it's not long ago, that's less than 20 years ago, that we figured out, hey, wait a minute, these people can experience pain and it's not their dementia making them act in these crazy ways. They actually have pain and we can do some of that. Yeah, it's, it's their reaction that we need to read into as a signal of what, what truly is going on and us, us being more responsible and, and more caring and taking that time to, to really look at, at what's happening. Um, I remember when my dad um, was dying, you know, he had pneumonia and everybody wanted to give him the pneumonia shot. And I said, no. And my whole family was just shocked. And I said, it's not going to bring dad back. You know, but everybody thinks that it's going to fix, 
the inevitable and it's not. And finally, everybody agreed, um, you know, after hospice talked and said, you know, she's right. Cause I said, please tell me if I'm wrong, but that's my understanding. And so many times we're just not ready to let go. And we have to decide, you know, is this about us or them? And how do we do this graciously together? Yeah, you make a great point, Lori, and so beautifully stated. Um, you know, antibiotics, that's another thing. You know, I mean, if someone has a urinary tract infection and they're experiencing a lot of pain from it, um, antibiotics make some sense. If someone has repeated pneumonia, after they've had a couple of bouts of this anyway, antibiotics are not going to do much, if anything. They're very limited in their effects. And it's probably a good sign that uh, the end time has, has, has come. You know, it's, it's, if, you look at, if you look at spouses, you know, older spouses, their tendency is to look at their loved one who's in the end stages of dementia and think, you know, it's been a good life, been there, done that, let's throw in the towel. It's the adult children, and all the studies indicate this, who have the difficulty. And you, you know, we all do. Everybody does. Because, I mean, when my, my parents are both passed on now, you know, but when your parents pass away, you know, you're atta- that's attachment 101. You know, you like yeah. to get on the phone and say, hey, mom, it's me, Stevie, you know. Yeah. But when you can't do that, the world changes. Somehow it's like the roof got blown off your house and you're just looking up at the cold stars. And, and so, um, you know, adult children naturally have this feeling that they want to hold on to their parents. And so a lot of times I've found myself in situations where I, you know, very empathically um, talk with the adult children and I, and I discuss the fact that X, Y, or Z is really not going to be helpful to them. And usually they'll come around. Every once in a while they won't. And in the end, it's their, it's their choice. But I knew a woman in Elyria, Ohio, who once was really heartbroken because she had one daughter and, and two grandchildren by that daughter. Um, her husband was at end-stage dementia and, and, and really didn't, you know, she had no interest in a, in a feeding peg, um, and she decided against it. But her daughter just couldn't come around on it, so they disagreed. And when I saw that woman... For the last three years, her daughter had had nothing to do with her because she thought somehow she'd killed her dad. She hadn't seen her grandchildren for three years. So communication is, is so key in bringing people together and understanding that in the end, um, uh, we don't want to cause suffering. And it's not so much... I mean, the odd thing about the, the, the feeding pigs is that actually people will, on average, live a little longer with assisted oral feeding than they will with the feeding pig. Yeah, well, I think it's that that interaction to that social cycle part that you were that you were talking about. Even when you were um, talking about the assisted suicide, we did a two-hour special on that, um, and it was fascinating. At the very end, somebody said, "Well, Lori, we haven't heard from you. What do you think?" And I just said, well, you know, I'm a girl that likes my options. So I would, I would like that option. But I have to also say, I wouldn't have given up one moment with my mom. So this is why people's images of what it is to be deeply forgetful really matter. 
Because if you buy into all these worst case language games, mm-hmm. uh, shell, etc., cetera, uh, and you don't realize that there's a lot of variation and that every case is different and there is no set pattern really. Um, you know, you only have one life. It's the only life you got. Mm-hmm. You only got one life. And there can be lots of moments that are meaningful, even though you are deeply forgetful. Okay. And, 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 and so if you're, if you're throwing in the towel preemptively, um, there's, you know, you're making, that's a major decision and you really need to think about it. Having said that, um, I would, I would make the case that, you know, if, if you look at Oregon and if you look at Vermont and a lot of different places, you know, you can have assisted suicide if two doctors determine that you're going to die within six months, mm-hmm. that you're lucid of mind and therefore competent to make a choice. Well, that's designed for people with, say, pancreatic cancer, right? But if you have a progressive dementia, you may not be going to die for 20 years, you know, because the range is so varied, you know. Uh, but you'll have lost your capacity to make a decision. And uh, so by those rules, by those legal structures, you're actually discriminated against deeply forgetful people. And that's why uh, up in Quebec, you know, they're doing this big program up there. And I think they may actually, and I don't agree with this stuff necessarily, but I understand that they're actually having euthanasia by advanced directive. You could say, well, if I get to a certain condition, um, I want to call it quits. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I relinquish that to, to others. But um, it's, it's a very challenging thing. When I was at Case Western, we had, this will make you laugh. This is 1989. We had a, a opening for a professorship in medical ethics at the medical school. And uh, we got an application from Dr. Kevorkian, who was up north, right, up in Michigan. And his first subject, Janet Atkins, was someone with uh, Alzheimer's disease. And she'd gone up to the University of Washington and been on an early TACRIN study, did nothing for her. She was a member of the Hemlock Society. So she, with her husband and the support of her three sons, comes to Flint, Michigan, goes behind that old uh, Kmart, gets in a Ford van, and there's Dr. K with his Mercitron machine, language being everything, you know, puts the butterfly needle in her arm, and it's assisted suicide because she pushes the red button that allows the poison from the third sac to flow into her veins. Now, um, actually, assisted suicide was not legal, but the laws were unclear up, at that, up until that time. They were later clarified, and Dr. Kevorkian got in a lot of trouble. But, um, he, you know, but he applied. And, and um, you know, I, I never felt in my heart that I wanted to blame Janet Atkins, okay? I'm not going to run around and say, oh, this is completely off the chart and, and I don't get it. Because, you know, if you go back even to the ancient Roman Stoics like Seneca, they all said, we don't like suicide. But if you're old and you, you're, you're, you're facing a very difficult situation, lived a good life, that's more justifiable than, say, 
condoning an adolescent who jumps off the roof of NYU, which happened in the epidemic about 10 years ago. So, you know, it's a complicated issue and it's going to be more and more real. But the, but the but most of the places currently, other than the Netherlands, just rule out the option for um, deeply forgetful people who are not yet deeply forgetful, but they see it coming. Um, it's complicated. Yeah, it, it is very complicated, and I think it's something that we have to we have to talk about. We had um, one one friend of mine who has dementia said, you know, he he's very much for the assisted suicide or taking his own life, and um, he doesn't want to live like that. He doesn't want to be a burden. And I said, well, what about your family? And and um, you know, he said, well, I've talked to my wife. And I said, well, what about your daughter? And he says, I'm still the father. And I said, but you are taking an opportunity for her to care and learn and love you on a level. And, and I'm, just, I'm just saying, maybe you want to talk to her about that. Thank you. Because to me, the whole deal is um, the silver lining of accepting deeply forgetful people into yeah. our lives. And that's what happened to me as a relatively young guy with my, with my grandmother, you know, who, by the way, she liked uh, M&M's chocolate-covered peanuts, mm-hmm. and she would have them in a bowl, right? And she would suck the candy off and suck the, ch- suck the chocolate off, but she didn't like the nuts anymore. They were hard on her teeth. So she'd put them all back in the bowl, and I would commission mm-hmm. the bowl. And I, I must say, I never, never, I never indulged. <laughs> I, wasn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't that accepting. But you learn, you learn to accept the forgetfulness. And, you know, um, there are so many different conditions in human experience, human illness, uh, whether it's amnesia, whatever it might be. You know, forgetfulness is very real and um, uh, very significant in human experience. And so if we decide that because we're forgetful, we don't matter, it's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of, I think, the, the biggest lessons that I learned through the journey with my mom, because there were times I was frustrated and, I mean, I, I didn't know what to do. And, you know, all those things that happen when you're caring for somebody else. Um, but when I learned to ask myself a simple question, it, it made it all better. And I always got the answer. And the question was, what's the lesson? Yeah. And I realized that that applies to all of my life. And it, it reduces the stress and it gets you actively looking for the answer instead of woeing about the problem. And I just, I can't thank my mom enough for her journey that she shared with me. Absolutely. It's just, um, oh, we just have to get back to being human and, and being compassionate and, and like you said earlier, being and realizing that none of us are perfect. Oh, we, we, are, we all forget. Um, and that we, you know, if we're honest, we're probably all differently abled. <laughs> you know? And there isn't this, there's this standard it doesn't, this thing we're shooting for, you know, to me doesn't exist anymore. I've kind of gotten rid of the word perfect. Yeah. And I don't care about progress. Thank you. Because I, I'm, a, I'm a true believer in the spirituality of imperfection. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, 
Um, we are all imperfect. We like to get arrogant and think that we know more than we do, you know, and we want to prove this, we want to prove that. But the bottom line is that we're all very imperfect and our brains are very fragile, imperfect entities. So um, if you don't accept your own imperfection and the imperfection of people around you, you'll never have a meaningful relationship. You'll never be able to connect with anybody because it's just basically judgment. And so I, I, and I'm, a, you know, I'm, not, I'm not an alcoholic historically or any other way, but I study AA a lot. And in AA, the whole thing is accepting in humility your imperfections. Everybody has imperfections. And once you accept that, you know, I'm Bill, I'm an alcoholic, right? You know, I did this. I, not that you have to harp on those things, but, but we have to accept imperfection. And this idea that somehow we have to have perfect memories and perfect minds and perfect functionality to count you know, to have any kind of, well, I mean, this is a horrifying story, but I will tell it to you. It's a little bit difficult, but uh, about 12 years ago, I was called by some people to go to a town, which will be unmentioned in Connecticut, because there was a Muslim woman who had been married for many years. Um, her husband died and she insisted meeting with her imam she wanted to stay loyal to the memory of that relationship. So she never engaged in sex and remarriage. She gets uh, demented. She's in a nursing home that really falsely advertises that it provides good care when really it didn't, you know. So they didn't even have the waist-high doors, right? So she wanders out into the hallway. She goes down a few hundred feet, goes into a room, and there is a guy in his 40s who has... Uh, bipolar disorder and some schizoid affective uh, realities as well. And, um, and he rapes her and the night nurse comes into the room at that moment and breaks it up. And the woman, the poor woman is absolutely distraught and in tears. So they had to report this to the state of Connecticut police, which they did. The next morning they had to report it to the family. Well, they reported to the daughter-in-law, not the son. The son would have been so furious. And the daughter-in-law, of course, had to convey this to the son. And the family sued the nursing home for negligence, right? And I was called by the family uh, to give a deposition. It lasted five hours. It was sweaty. It was August. Boy, it was horrifying. These lawyers for the nursing home were saying, that under Connecticut law, you cannot harm a person who is deeply forgetful. Do you know why? Because she could not retain the memory of the rape. Okay? She could not retain the memory of the rape. And so I spent five hours convincing them that a rape of a person who's deeply forgetful is no different than a rape of anyone else with regard to the principle of do no harm. And ultimately the case was settled on behalf of the family. I was kind of sad about that because I wanted to go to court and become part of case law. Mm -hmm. but, you know, there's still this tendency to really, uh, um, really devalue um, the lives of the deeply forgetful. And that's, the ultimate ethical problem. I mean, the, the little ones, there are all kinds of little issues, you know, 
genetics? Do I want to get a genetic screening test? Do I, you know, what about confidentiality? What about X, Y, and Z? There are all these things that come up. Um, but, uh, you know, ultimately, the great moral challenge is, do we have it in our hearts, in our minds, and in our souls to accept the fact that the difference between them and us is not as great as some people would like us to believe. Well, that's a perfect way to end this conversation for people to, to think about that. Um, that story, it just, it made me nauseous, you know, that, that people would go to that point of, of saying they can't feel, they can't know, they won't remember, it's not important. It's just like, oh my gosh, thank you for standing up for that. Oh yeah, uh, I, took, I took a I took a plane home to Cleveland that afternoon, and well, I took like a, you know half hour shower because it was just such a so hot and so sweaty and so ugly. But we did win the case. Wow, that is just I mean it is just so sad. And if that would have become you know case law, that would have opened the door to just so much more ick. Oh, I mean it just would have been horrible. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, unbelievable. Well, thank you, um, Stephen, for taking so much time with us today. I do want to um, point people to your website, though. Stephen G. Post, and that's Stephen uh, with the P-H, so S-T-E-P-H-E-N, and then G, post, P-O-S-T, dot com, or his email, Post at stephengpost.com. And we also have listed your um, mailing address you had given me as well that's listed on, on the website. Again, thank you so much for your time today. Again, spread the word of, of Stephen's work because uh, he's, he's doing amazing things. And if you need a keynoter or a trainer, um, give him a jingle. Don't forget about his books as well. Go to his website, uh, Stephen G. Post. Dot com. Thanks, everybody. Bye now. Bye-bye. Get to Old Navy right now. Get up to 40% off jeans, outerwear, and tees. Plus, grab stylish new jeans from just 18 bucks for adults, 12 for kids at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Hurry, ends tonight. Valid 1020 to 1028, select styles only. Get to Old Navy right now. Get up to 40% off jeans, outerwear, and tees. Plus, grab stylish new jeans from just 18 bucks for adults, 12 for kids at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Hurry, ends tonight. Valid 1020 to 1028, select styles only. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.